This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Yidikar, where we are dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's sermons and talks, just the good stuff. We hope you'll enjoy. Thank you for your support. You know, there's a, there's a minhag, there's a tradition that the sermon that's given on Shabbat Hagadol is no shorter than 45 minutes. <laughs> <coughs> this won't be that. Don't worry, don't worry. So there was once a great sage named Choni. He was a miracle worker with a direct connection to God, and the people would turn to him to pray in times of drought. There's a famous Talmudic tale that Choni was once walking along the road when he saw someone planting a carob tree. So Choni asked the man, how long will it take for this tree to bear fruit? Seventy years, the man replied. Do you expect to live another seventy years to, to taste the fruit of this tree? The man shook his head. I was born into a world of carob trees just as my ancestors planted for me. So too I am planting for my descendants. Tired from his journey, Choni found a comfortable rock to lay his head on. You know, because back then they had comfortable rocks to lay your head on. <laughs> and he closed his eyes. Miraculously, a cliff formed around him and he disappeared from sight and slept for 70 years. 70 years. When he awoke, he saw a strangely familiar man harvesting beautiful carobs from that same tree. Are you the man who planted this tree? Choni asked. My grandfather of blessed memory, he planted this tree many years ago, and at last it bears fruit. 1,500 years later and 10,000 miles southeast, on the Pacific Island nation of Kiribati, there's a 41-year-old man named Ioan Tesiota. Tesiota grew up in a traditional village of fishermen and farmers who fed their families by wading into the shallows for clams and digging freshwater pits to grow giant swamp taro. In 2007, facing the challenges of poverty, Tesiota and his wife applied for and received work permits in New Zealand. Over the course of the next four years, he worked in greenhouses and farms while his wife worked as a caretaker. They welcomed three children into their growing family, but in 2011, after inadvertently overstaying his visa, he faced deportation back to his home country. Tesiota did something that no one else had ever tried. He applied for asylum in New Zealand, arguing that he was unable to grow food or find potable water in Kiribati because of climate change. The islands of Kiribati, which stand only six feet above sea level, have faced increasingly fierce storms over the last 15 years, and it's only projected to get worse, hence Tesiota's petition for asylum. Stronger waves will likely slam the coast, disrupting the food supply. Higher temperatures and rainfall changes will increase 
the prevalence of diseases. By 2050, 28 years from now, climate scientists warn that Kiribati will be a living hell. 28 years. And Choni, he'd still be sleeping. Because Choni's world assumes, understandably, a future that looks much like his past. We no longer live in that world. We no longer live in a world that promises the water, weather, or land from which our caribs will grow. And lest we think that this nightmare is only being dreamt 10,000 miles away. A recent report issued by the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change screams otherwise. They warn that a 1.5 degree Celsius increase by 2040, which we are well on our way to, will expose 50 million people to flooding. That includes our friends and family in New York City, Miami, and Norfolk, Virginia, where my parents and sister live. Moreover, the lines on the map that we call national borders will be effectively meaningless when tens of millions of people flee their home countries, refugees in search of dry ground, potable water, and food. In the words of Greta Thunberg, we cannot solve a crisis without treating it as a crisis. At the roots of our collective story is one crisis after the next. By the end of the third chapter of the Torah, we were handed an eviction notice to leave our home in Eden. By the end of the fourth chapter, the first sibling relationship ended in murder. By the end of the sixth chapter, God promised to destroy every living thing on earth by means of a flood. We've been here before. And today, on the cusp of Passover, we re-engage with the crisis of slavery and oppression, and so I ask, what have we learned from an origin story saturated in crisis and from the retelling of these stories every year? Because we desperately need this wisdom to find our way to liberation. The central question of the Passover Seder is, can you see yourself in this story? Can you see yourself in this story? Not just the one-time exodus, but the story of a recurring journey from narrowness to redemption. In this question, it's posed as an imperative in the Haggadah. Chayav adam In each generation, every individual must see themselves as if they left Egypt. When the story ceases to be abstract, when it stops being someone else's heroic tale, and instead we understand that it's deeply personal, fundamentally ours, we begin to recognize both what it took to leave and how urgently crucial it was. To inhabit the eyes of an Israelite slave means seeing the brutality of the system and the rampant suffering. These eyes leave little room for denial, diminishing space for the postponement of solutions. 
But do you know what else these eyes saw? They saw courageous midwives whose conscientious objections saved vulnerable human life. They saw and supported vocal leadership, making demands of those in power. They saw coalitions of people, mixed multitudes, joining their cause and marching together. They saw redemption. And these eyes, they're ours. That's the provocation of the Seder. You did it once. You left Egypt. You can and you must do it again. Which begs the question, on the road to freedom, what will each of us do to leave Egypt behind us? Because Egypt is not just a place. It's what causes the storms flooding Kiribati. It's the nightmare that Choni would awake to if he lived today. It's our addiction to fossil fuels, our extractive relationship to the earth, our rendering of creation solely and soullessly as an instrument for our greed. What each of us must do is, of course, both a personal and collective question, which demands answers on both the individual and systemic level. In the face of so many heartbreaking projections about life on this planet in 10, 30, 50 years, it is tempting to see our smallness, to say, why bother? To release individual responsibility because we know that it was the strategy of giant fossil fuel corporations to fund massive campaigns shifting the onus of the crisis on us, on individual choices. And yet, leaving Egypt, it didn't just happen in Pharaoh's court. 600,000 people left Egypt, and while we might only know the names and stories of a select few, there is no redemption without all of them packing their bags in the middle of the night. Individual changes, the everyday choices of what we eat, how we power our homes and fuel, our cars, the products we buy, these begin to heal the dissonance in our own lives between what we know about the crisis and what we're doing about it. It has to be personal. We have to see ourselves in the story, changing the course of how we live, making the decision to leave Egypt with all of the unknown and sacrifice that entails. And in the words of Michael Pollan, if enough people bother, each one influencing yet another in a chain reaction of behavioral change, markets for all manner of green products and alternative technologies will prosper and expand. Just look at the market for hybrid cars. New moral imperatives and new taboos might take root in the culture. Flying all over the world without care or eating a 24-ounce factory farm steak might come to be regarded as outrages to human conscience." End quote. Individual responsibility is crucial, but of course, only part of the road to freedom. The Torah dismantles Egypt most enduringly by articulating a vision of the anti-Egypt, 
a society predicated on protecting the stranger and living in right relationship with the land. And it's difficult to get there. As the wilderness generation demonstrated again and again with their constant yearning to return to Egypt, they, they had to learn to shed the indoctrinated mindset of their servitude, to adopt new ways of being. You might say they, they had to derive their energy from new sources. The project of society building necessarily involves pulling the levers of power, both politics and money, which is precisely why ICAR's Green Action Team had previously worked to end new oil drilling in LA and is currently organizing around fossil fuel divestment. It's why on April 20th, we'll gather in front of some of the largest banks who invested $1.5 trillion into fossil fuel expansion projects in 2020 alone. I hope you'll join. Solar and wind power is now the cheapest energy on earth and we have the technology to store it, but Egypt continues to invest in fossil fuels, energy from hell, when energy from heaven falls from the sky like manna. We tend to picture that fateful moment of crossing the Red Sea as one channel of dry land that all of the Israelites pass through. But maybe we need a different image. Rabbi Eliezer's image is not of one channel, but 12. One for each tribe, each path cutting through the water and leaving Egypt. Shnem asar chlakim keneged shnem asar shvatim. And despite the walls of water between each path, the people he taught, they could see one another. Collective liberation doesn't require us to all walk the same exact path. It asks us to find our tribe and walk with them towards freedom. To find the path that each of us can commit to in our personal lives and in organized power and start marching because we'll need every channel to leave Egypt, every channel to claim our liberation. Shabbat Shalom, Chag Sameach. Hi, it's Rabbi Brous again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you, maybe even in person, sometime soon.